Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, April 3rd, 2018, and I'm your host, Ariel Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Mercury is retrograde now until the 15th of April, so it's not a good time to start new things or sign papers or buy electronics. Instead, take the time to reflect, and don't be surprised if computers act up. Well, our next Starseed Quest to Arkansas is for Pleiadian Lineup on May 18th through the 21st. All you need to join us is at least one galactic star marking on your astrological chart at 25, 26, or 27 degrees of any sign. This is a soul group reunion in the crystal capital of the world designed to enable a catalyst for starseed empowerment to higher frequencies. We've redesigned this event to be much more affordable than the previous gatherings had been. So if this sounds like what you've been looking for, just write to Crystal's um, soon at starseedhotline.com for more details because there are only five spots left for May. Our very special guests this evening are Australians Stephen and Evan Strong, who have a background in archaeology and anthropology of the indigenous original people of Australia. There's a completely different original history and ancestry than what is accepted and endorsed by mainstream academics. The Australian archaeology, rocks, relics, and oral history stand united in substantiating the existence of earlier advanced civilizations, the importance of magic and mystical forces, and behind all of this, the involvement of beings from the Pleiades. Whether dealing with a sacred standing stone site, nearly 200 sacred marked and magic rocks, or the recent influx of skulls and bones belonging to beings no longer remembered in official channels, and nor can they be classified as sapien or even hominin. The questions asked do not belong to any accepted version of human history and evolution. The skulls are so unlike any found anywhere and ask questions that can only be answered by looking into the sky. As on top, so below. Together, they've written several books, including Ancient Aliens in Australia, Forgotten Origin, and Out of Australia, which challenge the currently accepted historical theory that the first hominids came out of Africa. Do check out their website, which is ForgottenOrigin.com. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank Jada and Kathy tonight for hosting the switchboard for those who may have a question or comment for our guests. We have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds thanks to Tammy's helpful dedication. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk. And if you'd like to show your support of our program, please click follow on our page here at Blog Talk, and you'll get our weekly show notice so you know what's coming up. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 888-881-0881. 
The Stage 1 starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings in your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. And for those who need healing of any kind, whether it's emotional, physical, or spiritual, for yourself or your pets, Tammy's powerful remote sessions will make a difference for you. And if you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when it happens by requesting your solar return timing. And please remember, if you want a stage two interpretation, a live session of that solar return chart, you'll need to order it at least three months ahead of time to get in before your 10 hours because we do have a waiting list. So uh, first off this evening, it's Anastasia with her fascinating Starseed News. Good evening, Ariel. Hello, Starseed listeners. Hey there. It's great to be with you. I hope you all are having some nice weather in your neck of the woods. We've had the first day of spring here since, I don't know when, since February, actually. (laughs) It was very warm in February, and then it turned cold. And today it's nice. The tulips are blooming. But we are having severe weather, so I hope that we'll be able to do this part of the broadcast without any interruptions. There are storms in the vicinity. So I guess I better get to it. Well, we have a minor geomagnetic unrest going on right now. NOAA forecasters say there is a slight chance of geomagnetic unrest April 5th when a solar wind stream is expected to brush against Earth's magnetic field. The sun is blank right now. There are no sunspots. And I wanted to let you know that the current stretch of spotless days has been two days. In 2018 so far... There have been 54 days of spotless sun, that sun with no sunspots. That's 58% of the total. But in 2017, for the entire year, there were only 28% of the entire year was, were spotless days. So heading into 2018, we have far more spotless days on the sun than we've had all of last year, so we'll see how that pans out for the rest of the year. Sun is definitely in a minimum phase. Well, that Chinese space station I was telling you about last week, it burned up in the atmosphere upon reentry. The Chinese space station Tiangong-1, whose imminent crash space watchers have awaited, uh, has pierced the Earth's atmosphere over the South Pacific, according to Chinese state media. Most of it reportedly just burned up in the atmosphere, and there were no reports of crash landings into occupied areas or any injuries. People were wondering about that. didn't happen. Well, there was a magnitude 6.8 earthquake that struck Bolivia. It was pretty powerful. struck yesterday, and it was so deep that there were no reports of injuries or damage. Only light tremors were felt in Bolivia's capital and other cities, but... The quake caused people to evacuate office buildings that swayed as far away as Sao Paulo, uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil. That's 1,800 miles distant from where the earthquake hit. And the Turrialba volcano in Costa Rica uh, continues its sporadic eruptions. They say that it just won't stop. As of April 1st, two significant eruptions took place early in the morning and carried on for almost 30 minutes. Seismic activity continues along with a low-amplitude tremor at that volcano, and several communities in the central valley of that region are reporting ashfall. 
Well, we have clear evidence found of phone radiation causing tumors in rats. Researchers from around the world gathered recently in North Carolina to talk about cell phone concerns and whether they really do increase the chances of developing cancer. The panel voted that the results from years of testing on mites and rats were more significant than originally believed or perhaps accepted. They say they found clear evidence that phone radiation caused tumors in the hearts of rats, which were similar to tumors in human beings. Activists are demanding protection, citing separate studies from France and Italy. Many brain tumor lawsuits going on right now that are waiting for a study like this to prove that people's brain tumors were caused by cell phone radiation, said someone from the California Brain Tumor Association. Now, there are more serious concerns going on as 5G, which is a stronger, more pervasive, and powerful broadband radiation, is soon to roll out. And speaking of that, I want to give thanks to Starseed Sarah, who is an activist in this area. I'm profoundly impressed with her. She's done a lot of great work. And she pointed out to me this article recently broke in The Nation just a few days ago. And their article is entitled 5G Rollout, How Big Wireless Made Us Think That Cell Phones Are Safe. Well, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There is so much yet to uncover. I happen to have heard from people working in the industry in the past that they were, uh, they tell me that the big outlets were aware that cell phone radiation was dangerous, but that the companies covered this up. And in the nation now, we find out, and uh, by the way, I want all of you to, for uh, further information about this, go to uh, online to the nation and read this article yourselves. It's a bit lengthy for the tonight's news, but I am covering most of it, so bear with me. Uh, the nation tells us that cell phones had been allowed into the U.S. consumer market since the early 1980s without any government safety testing. And indeed, I remember the first cell phones when they hit the market in the 1980s. They were in suitcases, and they were large. They were enormous, actually. And people would put these suitcases in their cars as the first uh, uh, cellular telephone that was developed. Well, they weren't tested then, and they haven't really been tested legitimately uh, all, all along. At least the reports uh, from the legitimate testing has not been shared. But now some customers and industry workers are being diagnosed with cancer. In January of 1993, a man sued the NEC America company. They were the makers of the first wireless telephones, and he claimed that his wife's NEC phone caused her lethal brain tumor. Now, after Reynard, this man uh, who filed this suit, appeared on national TV, the story went viral. And after this, a congressional subcommittee announced an investigation. And when investors began dumping their cell phone stocks, the cell phone industry began a public relations campaign to make sure that people knew, quote-unquote, that cell phones were safe. In other words, it was a bounce back. Now, what this, these uh, cell phone industry executives did was they, they employed a researcher who happened to be an epidemiologist with a law degree. They expected him to defend them. And uh, this man had previously had a somewhat mm, checkered record as he had conducted studies for other controversial industries. After a study funded by Dow Corning, 
this researcher declared that breast implants posed only minimal health risks. And along with chemical industry funding, this researcher concluded that low levels of dioxin, which is a chemical in, in, behind the Agent Orange scandal, were not dangerous. So in 1995, the same epidemiologist began directing the industry-financed, he here, industry-financed wireless technology research project, otherwise known as WTR. They had a budget budget of $28.5 million, and at that point, it was the best-funded investigation of cell phone safety. Well, activists and critics alike soon came to suspect that this man would be the front man for an industry whitewash because of his record. By 1999, however, the WTR, the Wireless Technology Research Project, had commissioned more than 50 original studies and had reviewed many more. Those studies raised serious questions about cell phone safety, and this researcher told a closed-door meeting of the board of directors whose members included CEOs or top officials of the industry's 32 leading companies including Apple, AT&T, and Motorola. This researcher, surprisingly, very surprisingly, sent letters to each of the industry's bosses, reiterating to them that the research had found the following, and I quote, The risk of rare neuroepithelial tumors on the outside of the brain was more than doubled in cell phone users. And he said there was an apparent correlation between brain tumors occurring on the right side of the head and the use of the phone on the right side of the head. And he said, the ability of radiation from a phone's antenna to cause functioning genetic damage was definitely positive. Now, this researcher that everybody thought would turn uh, to be a turncoat for the public urged CEOs to do the right thing. He told them to give consumers the information they need to make an informed judgment about how much of this unknown risk they wish to assume, especially since some in the industry had repeatedly and falsely claimed that wireless phones are safe for all consumers, including children. Needless to say, the phone industry took immediate action to trash their golden boy researcher. They did this in the media openly charging that the studies had not been published in peer-reviewed journals and thereby casting doubt on their validity. Hmm. In the years to come, the WTR's cautionary findings would be replicated by numerous other scientists in the United States and around the world, leading the World Health Organization in 2011 to classify cell phone radiation as a possible human carcinogen and the governments of Great Britain France and Israel to issue strong warnings on cell phone use by children. Now, for this article just published in The Nation, this former researcher who warned CEO and executives of these companies about his findings told the reporter of this article that, quote, they would do what they had to do to protect their industry, but they were not of a mind to protect consumers or public health, end quote. And I think of the millions upon millions of people who are using these devices, who give them to their children. I have a a friend who has little boys, and one's three years old, and he runs around playing with this thing, games, and yikes. So, you know, um, the evidence is out there in more than one place. I'm preaching to the choir here. I think most of you already know that, but this is an important article 
for you. Maybe some of you have friends that think their cell phones are completely safe and that the rest of us are being uh, paranoid. Refer them to the article in The Nation. And once again, I want to thank Starseed Sarah for passing along all this very helpful information. She keeps me informed. All right, well, here is a wild article. Now, you know, I almost didn't put this in here because it's complicated, but I think it's important, so I'm going to share it with you. 3D printing. You know, when I first heard about that, I said, what? How is that possible? Well, you know, I keep meaning to try to understand this. I never have any time. But it is an amazing thing, this 3D printing stuff. Well, now researchers have printed 3D structures composed entirely of liquids. They're 3D printing water. <laughs> well, I know, it's, it's, it just boggles the mind. Using a modified 3D printer, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory researchers injected threads of water into silicone oil, and they sculpted tubes made of one liquid inside of another liquid with a printer. They printed threads of water up to one millimeter in diameter and in a variety of spiraling and branching shapes up to several meters in length. Now what they're telling us is that this is a new class of material that can reconfigure itself and it has the potential to be customized into liquid reaction vessels for many uses from chemical synthesis to ion transport to, to catalysts. This was according to the author of a paper that's been published in the journal called Advanced Materials. Now, this new material owes its origins to two advances. They've learned how to create liquid tubes inside another liquid, and now they know how to automate the process. Now, in practice, they inject this water into a special nanoparticle oil. Now, all of this involves nanoparticles, you guys. And components within the oil attach to the nanoparticles in the water forming a nanoparticle super soap. Now these super soaps jam together like glass, and that stabilizes the interface between oil and water and locks the liquid structures in, in position. When you see pictures of this, it's just water in suspension in different formations, like water floating in the air. Like You see these movies where well, maybe the gravity plating has been lost on spaceships, and the water or bubbles or coffee floats up in the air holding its shape, that's what this looks like. Just this suspended columns of water in nothing. And they tell us that this stability means that we can stretch water into a tube, and it remains a tube. Or we can shape water into an ellipsoid, and it remains an ellipsoid. And these, these shapes of water suspended, printed, and with 3D technology, lasts for several months. Now, what that all means, you guys, I don't know. But it's wild, and I thought I'd pass it along. Uh, it's just unbelievable. Wow. Well, here's a very heartwarming story. I love this. Scientists have been surprised by the monkey's altruistic behavior even when no one was looking. Now, this is about marmoset monkeys. They're adorable. They're just as cute as they can be. And they say that they're a part of the evolutionary tree that differs from our genetic branch that led to humans. But these little monkeys amaze researchers with their evolved social behaviors. This is fascinating. 
Marmosets demonstrate very polite, politi- uh, a polite communication. Do you know they don't interrupt each other? They don't talk over the top of each other. They wait until one is done talking, until another one talks. And they're very curious little beings. They will watch videos of mar- marmosets that they don't know, marmosets that don't belong in their community, other marmosets. And they will learn from these strange monkeys. They learn they pattern themselves and learn from watching other monkeys. And their social organization and their infant rearing practices are very communal. They help each other raise babies. The babies actually are looked at, looked after by extended family members who will absolutely delay their own breeding. They'll put off having babies of their own so that they can care for their relatives' younglings. And in observing these relationships of these marmoset relatives with the baby monkeys, a new study reports that the caregivers of these infant monkeys share their food more generously with the babies in private than when they're in public view of other marmosets. Now, researchers are finding this unusual animal altruism to be baffling. And they've been puzzling over it. And they tell us that in marmoset society, researchers expected that acts of kindness would be more common with an audience, like in humans. You know, people tend to do nice things when other people are watching. And they expected that without anyone around to watch, that the marmoset caregiver would be uh, more motivated to keep the food to themselves and not share it with the baby. But in Over 2,000 trials conducted with both adult and baby monkeys, the opposite behavior was discovered. An anthropologist from the University of Zurich carefully documented how often, in groups and in conditions that found caregiver and baby separated from the crowd when an adult would share his crickets, the crickets. So instead of keeping the cricket to itself, the adult would give it to the baby. Now, when alone with a baby begging for a taste of a cricket, the adults shared their cricket 85% of the time. But when they were in a group, the adult monkeys, the caregivers, offered up their cricket only 67% of the time. And the researchers say, and I quote, our results show that helping in common Marmosets, uh, that helping, helping in marmosets is not driven by reputation management or punishment avoidance. Rather, it is driven by an intrinsic motivation to help that is more strongly expressed when the adult monkeys are alone with offspring. That just shows such consciousness and love and caring. I'm just awed by that. I think monkeys could teach people a lot. <laughs> I think that's absolutely touching. You can look that up on the Internet about marmoset uh, studies and marmoset society. They're such adorable little monkeys and such loving, caring creatures. And the community takes care of the children and sacrifices for them. I think that's so beautiful. Well, from that beautiful story about nature on to something about science... Well, they have a new mind-reading machine that can translate your thoughts and display them as text instantly. 
scientists have developed an astonishing mind-reading machine that can translate what you are thinking and instantly display it as text. And they claim that it has an accuracy of 90% or more and say that it works by interpreting consonants and vowels in our brains. Now, the researchers believe that the machine could one day help patients who suffer from conditions that don't allow them to speak or move. It could be used for other things, too. Now, the machine registers and analyzes the combination of vowels and consonants that we use when constructing a sentence in our brains. It interprets these sentences based on neural signals and can translate them into text into, in, in real time. As fast as you think it, it can type it. In fact, scientists claim that the machine can use words it has never heard before. The study leader has said that no published work has demonstrated real-time classification of sentences from neural signals. Given the performance exhibited by the machine in this work and its capacity for expansion, we are confident in its ability to serve as a platform as a prosthetic speech device. There are fears from critics, however, that the device will cause problems if secret thoughts are accidentally exposed. This device was developed at the University of California, and the story came out in the Journal of Neural Engineering. Gives me cold that chills. gives me the shivers. <laughs> and it gives me the shivers, and it reminds calls to mind Frankenstein. Yeah. Yikes. All right, well, on to another article about UFOs. An Argentine pilot had an extremely close encounter with an unidentified flying object, and luckily he was able to record a video clip of the X-Files-like experience with his smartphone. You can see this on YouTube, everybody. The video clip of two mysterious flying objects passing just meters in front of a cockpit at high speeds has caused quite a fuss on YouTube. I watched this, and it looks very real to me. And you need to check it out when they slow it down in slow motion. The two flying objects don't look identical. One of them looks like a very thin, perhaps, cigar. Perhaps some of you might find a better descriptor for it. The other one is smaller and a bit more squared off to um, two ships. Now, the UFOs went, they say, dangerously close to his private plane. They cut through dense clouds. One craft moved twice from one side to the other before it disappeared from sight. In fact, these, both of these crafts passed in front of his airplane, going uh, left to right, and they moved so fast. Uh, you, if you bl- if you blink, you'll miss it. And then they come the other direction, from right to left, moving just as fast in front of the plane. You guys really need to check this out. Now they say that just days before the video was uploaded, it was reported that last month the pilots of two separate aircraft reported seeing the same UFO flying over southern Arizona. So. Y'all check that out. Check out YouTube. Type in Argentinian pilot films close encounter. And uh, this was posted on the 30th of March, so it's not that old. So you might want to check that out and watch that video. It's I don't think it's fake. 
So what do you think? You can write me an email and let me know what you think. So there it is. That's it for tonight's news. It's going to be a very interesting show, Ariel. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And thank and you so uh, much. It, oh, absolutely. And from my heart to yours, each and every one of you, much love. Have a beautiful week, and we'll catch you next time. Okay. Thanks, Anastasia. Just some really, really serious articles and some very heartwarming as well. So thank you for that. Okay. So now we are going to um, get Lavendar and our guests, Stephen and Evan Strong. Uh, let's see. Lavendar, there's your mic. And I will get Evan and Stephen's mic open. Okay. We're on go. Lavendar, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay. So you you need to mute yours. I'm hearing your echo, Ariel. Oh, that's that's. I think that's coming from from you, Evan and Stephen, um, because they're listening on a speaker. I see. Okay. But are you there, Evan, Stephen? Ah, uh, can you hear us? Yes. Oh, good. Great. Yeah, well, we are here then, if you can hear us. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. So go ahead, Lavendar. I will go ahead and mute my mic, though. Thank you. Well, I'm so thrilled to have you on our show. And um, our friend, uh, Starseed Emily Whitehorn, she was so gracious to send this information to us so that we could have you on the show. Um, so let you just start off telling us about your journey and how all this came about. So just just start us at the very beginning of how this started for you. Okay. Well, Evan and I began about 10 years ago when I was working in the Department of Education as a teacher and I was involved in writing the Aboriginal Studies course for New South Wales. And to begin with, I turned up and looked at all the textbooks and looked at all the research and I put that together with others and we put together a a actually a, a history of the original people because it had never been taught in the schools until then. And then what happened is because I won the trust of the children that I was teaching, then I won the trust of the adults, and then they started to show me things, and the more they showed me, the more I realised that everything we'd written was a mistake. So what then happened is that this course that they put together, which is the Aboriginal Studies course, was starting to fail throughout the whole of New South Wales, and no one was doing it. And the reason was obvious. They turned it into a history course. It was never supposed to be that. So they called me back down to Sydney, and I looked around, and there were 23 teachers there. 20, 21 of them were history teachers, and I realized it had been hijacked by an academic department. And that night, I, wrote, I contacted the fellow that ran the course and said, I want to go home. I want nothing more to do with it. And then soon after that, it dawned on me that I couldn't get this information out within the Department of Education, so I resigned and started writing. At, I was at the top of the pay list there, and then I decided to make a really clever economic decision and become a writer. And that's basically how it started. It was simply a matter of we knew what the truth was because the original people trusted us, and we did not have any mainstream group that would back us up. And from that beginning, I was then given ceremony, and so has Evan been given ceremony by different elders as we went further along. So what we're now doing is we're actually now sharing with people the original history line 
that was done by original people rather than the original history line done by academics, white academics who feel they know what's going on. So it really became a matter of I had the information. Should I stay in school and collect the money and then think to myself every day, the truth is out there and I can't get it out or walk away. So we walked away and ever since then we've been writing books and wandering all over the country for the last 10 years and we've got about 60, 70 sites on our list and they all, none of them, not one of them fits into the mainstream narrative. That's how it began. I'm here. Okay, okay, okay. So... uh, Give us a little history about Standing Rock site. That was very interesting to me when I started reading about it. Well, it's actually Standing Stone site. I mean, it is actually Standing Rock, so it's really semantics here. Um, this is an interesting story that sounds like it came straight out of an X-Fold episode. What actually took place about three, four years ago, a teacher um, joined an historical society and just as a whim, decided to go to the back room in the Historical Society and found this, unmarked, this filing cabinet. And he opened it up, and in the bottom of the filing cabinet was an unmarked box. And when he opened up the box, he found 22 letters written by Frederick Slater, who at the time he wrote this was the president of the Australian Archaeological Society. And he read the letters and then got in contact with us, and we started to put together the story that Slater was talking about, what he'd found. Now, what actually took place is, further on in the piece, I went to the farm where the Standing Stone site was destroyed in 1940. And I knew by reading the letters, it wasn't the farmer's fault. Because in 1940, as you know, it's the Second World War, and when there's wars on, the government do everything. They came to the farmer's farm and threatened him. Because they knew about the Standing Stone. It started being published everywhere. It was going overseas too, and the Carnegie Institute were interested. And they had to do something. So I worked with the gentleman who actually destroyed the site. He was 15 at the time and 92 when he passed on. And every time he spoke about this site, he cried. He cried completely, upsetting greatly. And he wanted to resolve his conscience before he moved on. So what he allowed us to do was to spend two days on site to map and to prove archaeologically this site was special, which we did. And what we started to realise as we went through the site itself, which was incredibly sacred, and the information that was written by Slater, to be honest, the information was outrageously controversial in 1939, and it's still outrageously controversial in 2018. Because the sorts of things he was saying was that this particular site was the beginning, the very first temple in the world. And one of the quotes I remember quite clearly is, within it has all knowledge that is, that was and will be. He seemed to think this was the most important site in the world. He called it Australia Stonehenge, but I don't really believe that Stonehenge scrubs up. And the reason was this. He also said that it, was, um, it chronicled the very first language spoken by all people on the planet. Before that so-called power of Babel thing we read in the Bible, when everyone could speak to each other and trust was complete. So what he then did was 
He started now. It's very important that people understand. That's a pretty radical statement to make. And you wonder how in God's name can you get a statement like that? We did some more research. I think Evan did most of it. We found that he got a hold of a dictionary. It was made by Eliza Dunlop. Eliza Hamlin Dunlop. Eliza Hamlin Dunlop, Dunlop in 1830. Yeah, sacred language. Sacred language. Uh, by the way, it's still being spoken today with some of the elders. They still know this language, and we know that as a fact. And what he did was, well, Eliza Dunlop, what took place was she was the, the wife of the first magistrate, and she had a love for original people, which, by the way, at that particular time in Australia's history, she was unique. That didn't happen much. She wrote uh, translated Aboriginal poems and songs. In fact, even in Wikipedia, She's regarded as the translator of the original language. And what she did is she won the trust of the elder at the time, and he knew what was coming on. He knew that this was going to be bad times for the original people. So he gave her the full dictionary. So you could look at each, it taught you the full dictionary, so you could look at each symbol and knew what it meant. Now that got passed on to his, her daughter, and then it got passed on to Slater about, a hundred years further on, or maybe 80. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had that. Now, we read a, put reports in newspapers where he would go to a site, I think Maruta was one, where for 25 years the archaeologists couldn't read a thing. And it was said that Slater went there and within five minutes read the whole thing. And they all agreed he was right. And he would actually had put a book together that was beginning, going to be published in England in 1938, then the war took place and that all stopped. And what he actually had was the first language. And the first language is made of 10 root words, which I know. And then it's got suffixes and prefixes, and they break them up. And Slater was up to 28,000 words in this language. Now, what I found interesting about that was that the first language humans are supposed to speak, if you read the books with the experts, it's grunting, it's cave, it's food, it's banging people on the head, and that's about it. And what I'm going, to get you to, oh, I'm going to get Evan to do now is I'm going to get him to read some of the quotes that were taken from the Standing Stone site that people get a feel for what this was actually about. Enter and learn the truth of the divine light. The breath of God is the divine light of the soul. The light of truth flows like a river of fire from God to the soul of men and women united. Guided by truth, man came to earth through darkness, from the light of life that shines far off. God came in with light from darkness and gave man a soul, and the sons of man brought in with light became the pillars of heaven. He who brought life into the world set down men and women and gave them the sacred means of propagating life. Man came to earth as man with his senses, seven of them, and was established in truth. So that is what we picked up. And we looked at that and thought, my God, this is actually not grunting. It's not cave. It's not shooting an animal or killing an animal. It is so religious and so deep and so profound, we started to wonder, are we at the top of the game right now? Have we fallen in a screaming heap? Yes, we might have some clever computers and a bit of technology. But when I look at this language, it is all about spiritual concerns but within it let me share with you the most commonly used term in this came to earth 
Man came to earth with seven senses fully developed. And people say to me when we read this, but we've only got five. I said, no, no. You have five that are supposed to support the other two, but we've all lost the other two. And that's what we're supposed to be here. So we've read this and we started to realise, and then, of course, Slater starts talking about our sky heroes being space, coming through, coming through space in a ship. Very, very clear. He tells us about Bayami, who is our main god, who came from the, came from the stars with his wife, whose name was Mula Mula, and it says in there, the interpretation is Mula Mula was not born from this planet, was born in the stars. Then it talks about one of Bayami's sons, the nameless one, who despaired of the earth, which may mean he's had a prediction of the future, and he went back. What he did was, he climbed up a tree that mingled with the clouds, and when it took off, fire came out from underneath, and it went to the Southern Cross. Now, Slater was writing this in 1938. Um, by 1939, his works had been taken out of every university in Australia. He was denied as a crazy man, a dreamer, and somebody who has lost contact with reality, even though he was the president of the Australian Archaeological Society. And he was buried in a nondescript grave. It took us a long time to find. He was smashed for that. And it's quite interesting. If you read the articles in Australia before the Second World War, they were talking about Egyptians being here. They were talking about other races coming here, and they'd all died. It's as if after the Second World War, someone got a hold of Slater's work and destroyed it. So that's basically what the mound is about. Now, the reason why this is a bit different to the Standing Stone site is there's 184 rocks, and we've seen them. Some weigh 10 ton. It's column of basalt. And we can even see the dirt marks on the rocks where they were sitting in the ground. We've seen that, and we know that they're the right rocks. And what we now know is where this mound is, it's about 40 metres above the farm, the, the plateau, the paddock below, and it goes up at 45 degrees. Now, when uh, Jack, the farmer who was told to destroy the mound, because, by the way, if he didn't destroy the mound, the government were going to confiscate their land. And I read where uh, the farmer had fenced off the whole area, lest the cattle disturb the rocks. So these people were good people. Well, when the government comes a calling during the Second World War and says, we're going to take the land off, you've got nowhere to go, nothing to do. So poor Jack, who was 15 at the time, and I've told him, if your dad tells you at 15 to do this, you just do it. You can't hold yourself responsible for what you've done. And the good news for Jack was that two weeks before he passed on, the story about the Standing Stones appeared on the local paper on page one. And he passed on soon after. It was like his soul had been redeemed, like all that was cleaned up. So when he went to meet his maker, I kept telling Jack, mate, if you hadn't have done this, if you hadn't called us, none of this would happen. The creator is going to be so happy with what you've done. So that's Standing Stone site. The interesting part is that before it was destroyed, we have a map where all of the 184 stones stand. We also have the name of each rock, which can only be spoken upon on the mound. And we also have the meaning in English of each rock. So we know where each rock goes. We know what it means. And we know how it works for the others. When you did the Stonehenge in, um, in England, 
They guessed where the rocks were going. We don't guess. We've got it all in front of us. And it sounds like a wonderful story. But it's not. Because every level of government, from local to state to federal, have gone out of their way to deny this as being true and to deny the validity of the place. So much so, ladies and gentlemen, that right now the local Shire Council, the Byron Shire Council, are putting up a proposal for a development of 465 houses on four properties, and one of them is the Standing Stone site. Oh, no. Which, oh, yes. Oh, yes. And it was voted 6-5. We lobbied the council big time, voted 6-5 to get up, but the council itself said, we've got to do a bit more work. And then the developers rung me and told me, I always had a meeting with other people and they told us to take down the petition we've got up. Take it down because you don't need it anymore. We're going to look after it. So I rang up the people he said he'd spoken to and every one of them told me, we didn't say that. We want the petition up. So we had the developers ringing say, take the petition down. Don't cause any problems. And when we tried to hold a public meeting here, the mayor put up on his website and sent it to every media outlet in Australia and every ratepayer that we're offending Aboriginal culture, we're peddling lies and misinformation, and we should be ashamed of ourselves. And we had 400 people come in at that meeting, and we called it off. Because when you talk about sacred places, you don't have it in an atmosphere of mistrust and maybe people out the front yelling and calling us racist. What's fascinating about that story, Zafri put that up, and yes, we cancelled the meeting. Four days later, he goes to the council meeting and gets up and talks and backs and pushes this development. And he calls us racist. He wants to put at least 95 houses on that place all around. And the worst part of this is that the major standing stone site, the one that's got a beautiful plateau that overlooks the whole area, is not gazetted or registered as a sacred site. So that means legally all they can see is what a great place to put houses on top of what we think is the most important mound in the world. And we know where the rocks are. We know exactly where they were dumped and we found them. And, of course, nobody would help us get them back. So there we are at the moment with something that could be the beginning of philosophy, of religion, and a nobler form of humans when they're far more aware than they are today. Because when you go through the translations, and we've got them all, there's nothing that doesn't talk about the soul about heaven, or about propagating life, which is quite fascinating in 1938, because no one knew how to do that then. I found it interesting he used the words propagating life, but in 1937, they wouldn't have known what that was. But he was writing it out because he had the translation. So that's the place, and at the moment, it's been looked after by the Australian politicians, and they've decided the best way to save this site is divide, subdivide the whole place and build hundreds of houses all around it. Now, the developers rang me and said, what we'll do is we'll put a fence around it. I said, oh, wonderful. Can you guarantee me that all the people living around there won't go for a walk there in the afternoon or the night? No, you can't guarantee that. Is there any recent electric fence or something? No, no, it's just a fence. People will look because humans are curious animals. What I can tell you is, if you walk on that mound, remember one person who did, Evan, that guy that walked on the mound in 1980. Oh, yes. Yeah, one person walked on the mound when it wasn't a big deal and he slept on it that night. For the next three months, he was paralysed down one side of his um, body and no one could work out why. Then he woke up one day and it was all gone. 
He told me straight away, I wasn't supposed to sleep on that mound, was I? I said, no, no one sleeps on that mound, mate. He said, I'm lucky I'm alive. I said, if you went back again and did that, mate, they'd kill you outright. So the place is alive. It's a portal. It's a sacred place. And at the moment, we have every level of government in Australia wanting to destroy it as quickly as possible. We know, because we have academics who back us, but they don't put their name up. That would be suicide. We know that they've said they know it's legit, but they do not want it out. That's the only rule they've got. They want it kept secret. So that's the current state of affairs for the Standing Stone side. I wish I could give you a better story than that, but that's what we've got. Oh, my goodness. What a story. Yeah. Uh, you what you a have written story, this in extensive um, pages, right? You have a lot written about this. Yeah, yeah, we do. We've got, we, in one of our books, Between a Rock and a Hard Place, I think we've written about eight chapters on it. And that okay. includes the archaeology we did for two days with about, Oh, and can I share with you this? This is really amazing. For people who think, well, why are you saying it's a sacred site? Let me tell you why. We had about 20 volunteers because we pay our people the same amount. We pay them nothing. And their health insurance is if you fall over, dust yourself up because we can't cover that either. So we had 20 volunteers and 10 elders. And we went ahead, the 10 elders and myself, we went ahead. And the story, as we turned back, we told everyone, if we don't get spirit signed, you can all go home. We had permission to go on, but we didn't have permission from the spirits. So my, my teacher, my original elder was named Kano. I can't say his last name because he's passed on. And he's so old, why you wouldn't believe it. I mean, he disappeared completely in front of myself and Graham Hancock. You can ask him, he'll tell you. He can disappear. Anyway, he said, when he got up to the mound, he broke into song, old way song, sacred language song. And he turned around to us and he said, oh, we need a sign now. And we said, what? He said, hawks. Right. Okay. We're looking around here thinking, that's going to be tricky. Anyway, within 20 seconds, three hawks appeared and circled directly above us. And that shocked all of us. And we turned around to Kano and said, well, that's the sign, isn't it? He said, no. He said, that's not a sign. It's not enough. So he kept seeing. And those three turned into five. Two more joined up, and they're circling together. And we've got five circling directly above us. They're not hunting. There's no way they were hunting. They were doing what was being done. They were being called. Those five, and we looked at him again, and he didn't even say any time. He just shook his head. Well, I think we'll just shut up and wait until he tells me how many he wants. And by this stage, I have no idea what he's doing. Eventually, there were eight hawks that broke up into a figure eight. Now, the standing stone side has two really large round circles and it's joined. It's really a figure eight with a long joining up piece. And he said, now you can go and get the others because now we have eight hawks making the sacred sign of infinity, which is the figure eight. The spirits have given permission for us to work on the sign. So when I say to you it's a sacred place, you try yourself. Go outside if you can. Break into song and see if you can get eight hawks to circle above you in figure eight. I'll guarantee you now you won't get it. You've got to be old way to do that. Wow. What a story. Tell us a little bit about the UFO cave art and the Egyptian hieroglyphics. <laughs> yeah, that's in another place. That's, we actually know that the National Parks and Wildlife set aside a slush fund to destroy the site. And one of the things they were going to do was blow it up and use it for target practice for the artillery, uh, for the army. Uh, when they found it, 
It was found cloak and dagger style, and what it had within it is about 300 glyphs. Now, of those 300 glyphs, um, the most common signal symbol is a UFO. Everyone is publicly called the UFO glyphs, and there's eight of them on there. Um, and it's a story. Primarily, there's two stories there. The first part on one panel is about two Egyptian sons of Khufu, Nefertaru and Nefertijeb, and that actually is in Proto-Egyptian, the earliest form of Egyptian. No denying it's there. It's about two boats that were wrecked at Gosford, and that they came in, and they looked after them, nursed them back to health, and they stayed there. They never went back. And that was the beginning of over 4,000 years of Egyptians coming to Australia. That was the beginning of it. But what's important is the first panel is about them coming and the fact that one of the, uh, one of the I think it's Nefertaru died from bitten by a snake twice, which I always found quite hard, sloppy, like twice, once is one thing, and they couldn't bring him back, so he died and they buried him. And it's quite possible we have one of his bones with us right now. But within it, um, Arnie Bev, who was our custodian and last descent, full descent, darkening on elder, spent probably five, six years and wouldn't talk about it. And then one day she said, I need to tell you about the star people. And she told us the star people made that. And she also told us they're Pleiadian and that their ship crashed in the water about three k's from the glyphs. And this was a record of them coming, the Pleiadians coming and being betrayed. And when you look at the UFOs coming down, five are landing and four, three are plummeting, aren't they, Evan? Head down first legs aren't up, and they're going to crash and die. So what it is basically about is chronicling the first time that Pleiadians come to that part of Australia. But mainstreams say that it was done by a deranged Czech with a chisel, no hammer. Some of the glyphs are five metres up the side of the wall there, and I'm wondering, he didn't take a hammer in, and he didn't take in a ladder. How would you do it? Um, it's not. I do know the full story about how they covered it up. And the comment that was made that still rings true to me is because we had people within the department, National Parks and Wildlife were working and told us all of this. The head said, we don't want any effing Egyptian wandering around here, so we're just going to destroy them there. What I can tell you is the person who was given the, the, the brief to destroy it kept putting them off and kept putting them off time after time because she had the money and said, when are you going to destroy it? When, oh, look, something fell apart and it didn't work, so I'm going to try something else. And eventually, other people found it. And then it became so much a part of the folklore of Australia, they couldn't destroy it anymore. But their intention was, and I know this for a fact, because the person who was doing this works for National Park and Parks and Wildlife. At the end of last year, she was going to go public and tell them everything. And then she backed down because she couldn't deal with the, the grief that would take place. And that led to a divorce in the, between her and the husband who'd been sitting on it for 40 years and said, you've got to get it out, but she couldn't do it. I don't blame her because the fear around her is pretty strong. So, yes, there's another site that has a lot of potential. And once again, on one occasion, we had an article up on the ABC, which is one, the, it's like the Australian Broadcast Commission, it was a one-minute, 40-second uh, article about the carry-on glyphs and how it was legitimate. And there was a website that was put up by that, and it went all over Australia as the second item, national news. And within two hours, it was taken off every radio station in the country. We spoke to people in the ABC, so that's never happened before. 
That could only have happened if it came from the government. So the whole time we've been doing this, of course it leads up to the skulls where they're threatening to put us in jail, and I've got letters to that effect, and we just got heard of another letter someone else has got again. Everything we've done has been fighting the government first. The archaeology is easy. We've won that. But fighting the government, who've done everything they can, including threatening to put me in jail, and I've got my second letter from them doing the same thing, and how does that too? So it's been a constant fight for us between getting out the truth and working with people that, I'm sorry to tell people this, but I wouldn't trust any government. I don't think they have an agenda to tell the truth at all anymore. They've lost whatever was left. Now all they do is just lie. And what we're dealing with these people is, um, I mean, I've got, you call it the CIA. I have my own person. I know what he looks like and I know his name. He's been working on us since we found the skulls full-time since December the 17th to find ways to put us in jail or destroy us. So, yeah, it's sort of funny. We, we wanted to do archaeology and we do bloody politics all the time. Wow. I'd like for you to, to tell us a little bit about the original people and their DNA strand and how it was different than humans and also talk about how the Pleiadians came and said, Pleiadian-only territory, no other ET races were allowed there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there was a new strand that was found about, um, uh, I think about six months ago, that only original people carry. It's not Denisovan, it's not Neanderthal, it's not any hominid in the planet. And it's there. And, of course, now we've found the skulls that go with it. It makes it much clearer. But at the time, all we knew was that. Now, the story is that way back in the very beginning when the Pleiadians came, they came before the others. They came to Australia. And I've, I heard the dreaming story about this. In fact, there's not, a, there's not a tribe in Australia that doesn't have the Seven Sisters dreaming story in their mythology. And it's the only dreaming story that's shared in every tribe in Australia. All other dreaming stories relate to the land they live in. But the seven sisters, everyone knows about. Every original person will always tell you the same sister, the same story. The Pleiadians are our brothers and sisters. But I need to tell people, I know the dreaming story, which we won't go through today. Even though the Pleiadians came with all their technology, they regarded the original people as their equals because of their psychic powers. Now, we actually, I'm not going to go through the stories here, but we actually got this from an ASIO agent. I got this indirectly, where they said straight out, they know this, and they said, we're trying to work out why the original people could stop all other alien groups from coming here. There is a rule that's written, and a rule through fear, because the other aliens fear the original people. They cannot come here. The Pleiadians came here with a long-term plan from the very beginning. And one of the parts of that plan was they had to cross-fertilise and breed with original people. And those genes, the Pleiadian genes, are the ones who enlighten us. And the original people had to go out to the rest of the world to export their genes so that everyone carries them. So that was the plan that was done way back in the very beginning. So the Pleiadians knew about this planet and understood what was different about this planet that is not like any other planet in the cosmos there is something about this planet that nothing comes close to and people often wonder why are they all here because our history is theirs our future will be theirs and right now they've been pretty worried about how things have been going we haven't behaved well so yeah that's part of 
original. I mean, to begin with, I've got to make a point. The first three books we wrote were uh, for University Press of America, and I want to. I would like people to understand we never mentioned aliens. In fact, I remember when I was given my first ceremony, one of the elders come up and told me I will be talking about that. And Snow, I said we won't talk about that. We'll do all the other stuff because once you talk about aliens. You get hammered like Eric Von Danik, and he's got so much grief, he's hammered, and all the others. And I said, we don't need that. We're not going to do it. Now, because of the elders, it's all we ever talk about. So this goes to show how little I knew about where we're taking this. So they insist right now that we do talk about it, and they also believe that they're coming back. Yeah, I think they're here. Oh, well, they are. But they're not allowed to appear, and I can't give you that. There's a date and a place and an event where they'll be taking the good intentions if there are enough people left, because I'm going to tell you this will be the worst year we've ever had when it comes to fear, manipulation, and terror. And what they're trying to do is make us all so fearful we won't be enlightened enough to accept what they want to do. My understanding is that all aliens cannot interfere, but they can supplement what the story I've got from, oh, so many elders now, I've given up trying to fight it. For a long time, my rational mind said, oh, I've heard this story of the change so many times, and I don't want to hear this again. But I keep getting the same details word for word from people that never spoke to each other, and they're strong elders of old way. They believe they're going to take our, our positive vibrations, punch it into Uluru, and then open up the whole planet. And that's going to happen soon. If there are enough, enough people left, that are still elevated and haven't been dragged into the mire we're going to go through this year. So you're saying that the the trip switch is, is Australia and it's, it is, there's rock? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's called Uluru, okay? Uluru, uh, that's the original okay. name Uluru. for it. And I'm an original man, so I call it by that. There's two switches. The Standing Stone site is on the coast. When that's put back together, that runs to Uluru and when they... I can't talk about how this takes place, but when they come and then basically amplify what we give them, it goes into Uluru, it runs off in ley lines all over Australia and then runs around the rest of the world. And then when that happens, I'll leave you with what I was told many times, and it took me a long time to work out, but I'm not going to tell you the answer. I was told this so many times, I only recently got my head around it. When that happens, I've been told that there's... There are two realities establishing themselves on this planet right now. The one we're in and the one that's coming. And already there are tears between the two. The two realities, the two dimensions, they call them the two dimensions, the two realities that become strong at that point, can only exist for a certain amount of time. You can't have two different realities in one place. One of them dies and withers completely, which is what we're living in now, the vibration we're living in now. The Earth will be lifted to a much higher vibration as you guys would know the Schumann resonance sometimes peaks at 150 my understanding is it will never drop once this happens and a lot of people who are not evolved will not be able to they will see that dimension out of the corner of their eye but they will never reach it and they'll spend their time here and then pass on that's what I'm told so what about the pole shift do you think that will happen Sorry? Ah, oh, no. No, this, it, look, yes. Yes, definitely, but no. That's a pretty good answer, isn't it? That just covers everything. 
the elders have told me there are three ways this runs out, right? One is a 15-degree shift, and that's going to be a shocker. They spoke about the fact if that happens, um, there will be a lot of water that goes over everything. Like that Hollywood movie where the, the monk is hitting a bell. It'll be worse than that. Two of them are catastrophic because the planet must cleanse itself, and it will. One way or the other, the planet will cleanse itself. But the third way of doing this, the one I spoke about, is the elegant way. Where there's no bloodshed, no conflagration, no smashing of anything. People are still there. One are in a higher reality and others are in a lower reality. And the people in the lower reality pass on and they don't come back. It's that simple. That's the third choice. The one we're trying very hard to push. I know a keeper of the other two realities and he's looking after them. And that's just... I don't like talking about it because it's just none of it's good. Well, let me, let me share something with you. You know, when I came back from, from Egypt in 1982, I came back in 1983, I'm sorry, 1983 in November, Pleiadian lineup. I was over there. The Pleiadians charged some, some crystals, um, 40 pounds of these tiny, tiny solution quartz crystals. I brought them back and distributed them around the world. One of the strangest things that ever happened... I came back is that over a hundred people in, in the middle of the night by these crystals telling them to take them to Uluru and for people to have airplane tickets and to get out there to that place and to plant those tricks to me that was just I, I, I was overwhelmed that I received from all these different people and later on for the rock a symbol that they actually found the mate to one of the pyramids in Egypt, which meant time travel. Well, so there. That, that made us smile when you said that because we know people in Australia that have been told to go to Uluru and place crystals there. People are doing it all the time to prepare. They're preparing for the better of the three alternatives, which, believe me, it's the one we all want. Um, if people don't get it and they can't, elevate themselves because we've been incarnating for so long and people need to understand we're the dross we've been coming back time after time because we never got it right the people that are left on this planet are the ones who haven't ascended most of them um, therefore and they've lowered the bar this time now I'm told all you have to do is to be accepted is to have good intentions every minute of the day you don't have to lead and learn a mantra you don't have to follow a religion you just have to have good intentions, which means an atheist could come on the other side. You don't even have to believe in God, but what you've got to be is a good person. That's all they want. What I call That's it really is the bar. what I call it, Stephen, is the up spiral energy, alive and living, and the down spiral yeah. energy is death and dying. I only deal with two energies now. For years, I played with all kinds of belief systems, but now I have mm-hmm. it really simple: alive and living. Up spiral, down spiral. That's oh. it. That's how we see it. Yeah, we see that's it how exactly I see the it. same way. And that's what the Earth is now separating into. And the reason why the Schumann resonance has been kicking up all the time is because it's happening now. I've spoken to elders who've watched wallabies, kangaroos, and birds fly through these tears in the curtain, and they just disappear. They don't. They don't they're gone. They go. Those those tears. In fact, I know one elder who's got a tear on his property where you can go to the other side now. So it's happening as we speak, but it comes to a, a sort of a, a climax 
um, when we get people at this right place and they, they take the energy and throw it back into the earth and the earth begins to heal itself. And what it also does, that energy will actually rebalance the earth because at the moment it is so quick, it's so close to tipping. Um, we've mined too much, we've dug too much, we've put the whole thing out of balance. It's really painful at the moment. But we've still got time. Yes, um, we do. Yes, we do. Well, uh, Steve and I have really, really enjoyed talking with you, and I'd like to pass you over to my co-host, Arielle. And yeah. she has the switchboard, and um, she will continue talking to you. And I would really love to have you back on our show because we've only touched the surface of your work. We haven't even talked well, about we have, yeah. discovered. <laughs> so, yeah, we're happy to come back. Yeah, we'd be happy. No worries. Yeah. So, so back to you, Arielle. Okay. Well, um, we're going to chat here for a minute, but first I just want to tell our listeners that if you have a question, you can, if you're already on the switchboard, you can just um, press 1 so that we know you have a question and you'll come on the air. And if you're listening on the computer, then you'll need to dial 917-889-8292. And then once you're in, press 1 so we know you want to come on with a question. So um, we'll, we'll see if we have any, any callers here in a minute. But um, I wanted you to talk about the, the skulls and bones that you found yes. and how they are not like any other uh, you know, ancient bones. Well, there's some good news for this because we found four, two that were buried. And after we got there, um, the place has been closed down by the Australian government and I, was, I received a letter threatening to put me in jail with a half a million dollar fine for two years or quarter million uh, dollar fine and one year in jail or both, which is really nice to give both at once. They've closed that site down. Then soon after that, we got some other uh, skulls that were given to us by an academic that tried to give it to the Australian government. They just gave him so much grief, he just decided, bugger this, I'm going to chase these guys up. Now, what's interesting, if I can just explain briefly what we've got here, we have one being that I do not belong, and I've already been told by the elders, it's just one of the sons of Bayan. Um, we have one being that has a really two really large eyes, massive eyes, the biggest eyes that any hominid has ever had, but has no forehead. Nothing. If you look at Lucy, which is 3.4 million years old, Lucy has a forehead massive compared to this one. There's no forehead whatsoever. What the actual skull does when it gets to the um, eyebrows, it runs back at 180 degrees and it runs back 18 centimetres by 12. We figured out that is a larger brain than what we have today, but it's nothing like any being that's ever been on this planet. In fact, we have managed to get some of the top scientists in the world on side with this one because they just couldn't leave it alone, mainly from overseas. And I remember when I showed this to an archaeologist who got his PhD in the out-of-Africa theory, I remember we were sitting for a while and out of the blue he said to me, knowing that in Australia the theory is that Africans came here and the theory that he subscribes to says that, they came here as homo sapiens and no one but homo sapiens have been here. This guy says to me halfway through, he said, he pointed out, he said, that's not a homo sapien. It just isn't. I said, well, that's a problem for you, mate, because you've got your PhD about the out-of-Africa theory. How does that fit in? He said, it doesn't. It ruins it. 
I said, well, and the beauty of it is they're going to continue. We're going to get a full gamut of tests done on this. Um, the, the government can't stop us this time because it's overseas, um, overseas archaeologists and different specialists that can see there's something amazing. And that, they're not tied into Australia's mindset of keeping everything secret. Now, the interesting part of this being, and I'm going to use a quote from an archaeologist that was open who said, the eyes do not belong to this environment but an other darker environment. Okay, so nature made a hominid that can't go out of date in the daytime. I was prepared to accept that. didn't make a lot of sense because no other hominid turned out like that, but I put up with it. The problem is I then measured this humerus when I did the two, we did the examination of the two that are in the ground there. And the humerus, your humerus and most humerus is 30 to 31 centimetres. That's the part that is from the shoulder blade to the elbow. Gibbons, which have got really long arms, their humerus is 35 centimetres. And as you know, they've got thick arms because that's the main limb they use. And that's how nature does things. If you're going to have one limb that's stronger than the other, then thicken it up. But here's the problem with this one. This one measures 42 centimetres, but I can't find the elbow. It's cracked. So it goes 42 centimetres down, halfway down past my um, elbow joint, down towards my wrist. But I don't know where it finishes. And if it does pick up from there, then that makes it 45 so the minimum length of this bone is 45. That means that the next bone that goes from the elbow to wrist, which is about the same length, will also be 45, which means we have a limb now that's at least a metre long. But here's the problem, ladies and gentlemen. If it is a metre long, the problem we have is when you measure its width, it's one centimetre. It is so thin, it's useless. It couldn't function on this planet it would just hang by the side and drag in the ground and wouldn't be able to do a thing you certainly couldn't play tennis with it you couldn't throw a ball with it um if you gave it a big hug on the arm you might break it it'll break all the time and i thought to myself this doesn't function at the gravity that's on this planet now if i was to halve the gravity i'd have more ligaments more muscles and it would become functional and then I thought to myself, but hang on, isn't this the same being that's meant to live in the dark? And I'm thinking, where can I find half the gravity and live in the dark? I'm thinking, well, a spaceship could do that. And I'm thinking, on this planet, we either have a mutation, a deviation in humanity that came this, had this amazing different thing. But the problem is, we've now found a second skull, very, very similar, where the forehead goes back even more. In fact, when you hold this skull to your face eye to eye, you can't see anything. The other one has a little bit of a ridge before it drops. This one, you can't see a thing. And what makes it weird is if you can think of what I'm looking at now, I'm looking at a being that has two eyes that take up 50% of the facial visage, a very narrow chin. It just looks like this. It, it doesn't look like, and we also know this, it doesn't look like any other hominid. Even the hominids that have the most receded foreheads, because the more it recedes, the most more ancient it is, are not within this, not in the ballpark. This is not recession. This is the the forehead here. Sorry, past that particular two eyebrows, it is meant to grow backwards. That is the way the genetic works. It's been programmed because we found two of them, 120 k's apart in different tribal groups, and both of them were buried with massive respect. 
in very ornate burial details. And in both cases, those two beings were buried next to other beings, one of which doesn't have any sutures in the brain. Now, if people don't fully understand what that means, is all hominids from Lucy up have sutures. And when you're born as a child, you've got three sutures that join up and for about six months they don't join. And that gives hominids the chance to grow their brain over a period of time. All monkeys and apes and primates have a sagittal keel, so their brains never get bigger. Isn't it funny how they say that monkeys and apes and humans come from the same being, but one has got such a man- monumental difference. But we'll forget that. They must be right. So what we've now got is we've got it in two places. It can't be a mutation now. It must be a, a particular group of beings. We feel like the non-sutured one, and everyone says, oh, no, it must be there. I've held it, and I've looked, and three other people looked, and we looked, and we looked, and we looked for even the tiniest crack of a suture. There's none there. Well, if there's no suture, the one that's got, and it's also 13 millimetres thick, which is one of the thickest bones in the world, and it's also got a square on the back, which is something that's very Neanderthal at the back of it. They call it a residual square of some type, which is on the back of it. So it's got a mixture of things in it. Um, and our, our scientists thought it might even be Homo erectus. Well, Homo erectus weren't supposed to sail boats and go to other countries. That wasn't in the rules either. No matter how this comes out, the one that has got this non-sutured skull cannot be classified as a Homo sapien because we all have sutures, cannot be classified as a hominid because they all have sutures. So what we have is two with foreheads that go back at 180 degrees that no human ever has, We've got another one where there is a bit more of a slope at the back, but there's no sutures, and that doesn't fit either. And that's, of course, why the Australian government are now threatening to put virtually a whole team that went on that day have been given letters threatening to put them in jail. And then if they don't answer, what happens to them? They get another letter, don't they? Oh, we're thinking maybe you just forgot. You can't forget because every letter we get, and I've got them too, they're registered mail. You've got to sign for them before you get them. And if you don't sign for them, then they know you didn't get it. So they know he's got it. They're just hassling everyone. They chased up the elders who took us on the site and threatened, I believe, to cut off their social security benefits. And that's why we've never spoken to them since. Before that, they were ringing us each week and watching our videos, and they were going to come to one of our talks, and they didn't come. I don't blame them. So the trick is, and I need to explain to people, the first set of skulls, the government took away, and they put them back. They threw them back in there. They didn't put them back properly. They threw them back, and they analysed them. And when they came back, they told the farmer the next day, never let anyone ever look at that again. And then they told them, but it's completely normal. No one's to look at it again. You don't have to talk about it. And for two years, the farmer didn't do that. And then finally, as I said, his conscience got the better of him, and he did. So now we've seen those two, which you can't get back onto, but my archaeologists that have degrees and all the right, um, all the right things that go with an archaeologist that they, the government like, they swear they'll get back onto that site. What we think they're going to find is either, at the very least, three hominins that are not like any on the planet, but I still have a problem with that humerus. It's too thin. I really believe... And by the way, the elders have told me those ones we're talking about are the sons of Biami, Bi- and Biami Bi- is a Pleiadian. So that's what we think we have. We think we now have. And now I can tell you we are getting a full tooth analysis done. We're getting a genome um, pattern done. We're doing mitochondrial DNA. They're going to reconstruct the two skulls we've got. 
with 3D imaging and they're sending out some people from another country. They're flying across to do this. And we're going to do the full batteries of tests and we're going to beat the scientists at their own game. We'll end up with all of the papers that prove, at the very least, we found things that aren't here. But what's very important to understand that all of these beings have cranium capacities far larger than 13 to 1400cc, which is us. Which means, if you've got a bigger brain, you're brighter, you're smarter. And when you read what Evan wrote, because they're the people who put that up, and you see what they're writing, you know straight away, these people have really got it. They know what they're talking about. So that's a, uh, a work in progress that was blocked for quite some time. But fortunately, mainstream science, which is quite unusual, ladies and gentlemen, have come to the rescue. Really? Really? <laughs> huh. um, I'm looking at the switchboard, and so far we just we don't have any questions. So, um, is there something else that you would like to touch on in the in the few minutes we have left? Uh, yeah. Well, if there's no questions, I mean, people must be fairly happy with what they heard. The only other thing I would like to mention is we also have a collection of sacred rocks, um, which have both technology that we can't, and they're 10, 15, 20, 30,000 years old. It has technology we can't do yet. But I'll leave it with this. I want to tell you something about these sacred rocks from a different point of view. It's a good way to finish too, actually. Um, about a year and a half ago, I went to the Australian Museum, who hate us with a passion, and we got invited to a, um, a trip down to the bowels of the Australian Museum. It's a bit like the Smithsonian where all the important stuff are in the bowels. And we got in to have a look at that. And the reason I went is the person who was conducting this was third in charge of Sydney, at the Australian Museum. And I decided to take some of these rocks that I'm talking about now and show her. And I went into this particular site, me and two other people, a psychic, because I always go on country with a psychic. And when we got in there, it was like the worst feeling I've ever felt in my life. There were thousands of artefacts there, sucking on a neon light, breathing in air-conditioned air, and sitting on metal and foam. And they wanted to go home. And anyway, it was so dark, our psychic lasted one minute and broke down in tears and couldn't come in. She had to leave. Um, I felt like, I felt miserable. I thought, I'm going to stay there. I'm going to stay there so I can make these people, make this doctor, look at this and know there's something amazing about original people and I'll have to pick it up. She looked at it and she was blown away. She said, my God, that technology is amazing. You're sure it's original? I said, that one's 10,000 years old. I can prove it. This one's there. Yes, yes, yes. She said, we're going we're to chase this up. We're going to do all this sort of stuff. Of course, it goes without saying, when they went further up the list to number one and number two, they wouldn't go near us. But the reason I'm telling you this is because I had those eight rocks and I had them in a bag. And as soon as I did this trip in the Australian Museum, I was driven to the airport. And I was driven to the airport, and um, as you guys know, that uh, there's so much security at airports now that it's, it's just unbelievable. Anyway, we go through the machine. You know the x-ray machine? They've got this really high-powered x-ray machine that costs a shitload of money. And um, the guy looks up at me, because they just put my bag through with eight rocks. Right? They were wrapped in bubble wrap. And um, he says to me, what's in the bag? And I said, rocks. Mm. He says, okay. And he picks the bag up and he pushes all the other bags away and he puts it through a second time. 
And he asked me exactly the same question. And I made a mistake then, which didn't make things get better. He said, what's in the rocks? And I said, is this Groundhog Day or something? I thought it was funny, but he didn't. Uh, he said, right then, I'm going to do it a third time. He went through a third time. And by this time, it had taken about five minutes. And we had a large group of people lined up behind me, and they were all pointing at me. No, no, they were pointing at me and I was saying things and I don't think it was complimentary because I was thinking, what has he got in there? So old mate does it three times. He says, right then, this is not right. I said, it is right. And he said, I said, they're original rocks, mate. They're sacred rocks. I said, that's what's in there. He said, no, they're not. I said, well, I said, I'm sorry, they are. He said, right, we're going to check this out. So he gets on the phone and he brings out the team leader and it says he's team leader, so he must be because it's on his badge and he wears gloves unlike the rest of them, and he's got a special hat. And he doesn't hang around with the other security guys. He turns up separate. So what he then did was he sat down and told the other guy to get out of the road, and he put it through. Put it through the first time, and the first question he asked was, what's in the bag? And I thought, I'm not doing the Groundhog Day joke. It didn't work the first time, and this guy doesn't look like a very happy man anyway. I said, they're just sacred rocks I brought. They're on country. They're sacred. They're in there. There's nothing else in there. He said, yes, there is. I said, well, mate, there isn't. So he goes through a second time. And then a third time, ladies and gentlemen. By that time, the line for our security vice uh, had gone through all the straps and gone out into the main walkway. And the conversations were really kicking on by then. And anyway, then what he does, after he's done it three times, he brings the bag and he puts it in front of me. I put my hand on He said, don't you dare touch that. I said, what are you talking about? They're my rocks. He said, they're not. Until I give them back to you, they belong to us. I said, that's not right. He said, it's the Australian government's law. While, those rock, while a bag is in our control, it belongs to us. I said, that's a ridiculous law. He said, that's the law and you can't change it. He said, now I'm going to search the bag. Now, Evan knows this as well as a lot of other people too. No one in the country is allowed to touch these rocks but me. Evan can't touch them. Right? No one can touch them under threat of death. And I can tell you a couple of people have done that and that's exactly what happened. It, it, it did happen. That's exactly they got that, That's it. They got cancer. Two people touched it. I remember when one guy touched it, he looked at me because I walked past because he was doing rock ceremony and he picked them all up and he had one in his hand and he said, what are you going to do to me? I said, it's got nothing to do with me, mate. It's all to do with the rocks but I don't think it's going to be good. Yeah, well, it wasn't because he had about nine cancers in his body. And it didn't work out well, and it just grew straight away. Okay, so this guy then says, I'm going to search the bag. I said, but you can't. I said, what do you mean? If you unwrap that, unwrap that bubble wrap you've got there, I said, you're going to die. It'll, they'll kill you. What are you talking about? What law is that? I said, that's blackfellow law, mate. It's much stronger than yours because our law has been around for so long. You just came recently. Blackfellow law says if you unwrap those, those rocks there, you're done for. And I don't, so I'm not held responsible. I've told you now. If you want to do this, it's up to you. But I wish you well in the future because you won't have much time left. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? He took the rocks out, but he wouldn't unwrap them. And then he looked inside the bag. It was just a canvas bag that I carry on my shoulder. And then he relented for a second when he put them back in. I said, mate, I've been here for 15 minutes. And I said, I've got a big fan club out there, but I don't think they like me a lot. I said, what the hell is going on here? And then he told me. He said, six times we put that through there and all we get is one huge black homogenous mass. We can't see anything. It's never happened before. 
what they did was they took all that negative energy out of the museum, all those rocks and artifacts are in pain, and sucked it in. And then they were giving it out. So when I say these rocks are not actually rocks, we now know these rocks, the ones we're working with, have a consciousness. They're aware of what we're doing. And on many occasions when I've broken protocol, I've been thrown in front of a semi-trailer once when they tripped me and threw me in front of the semi-trailer and he slammed on his brakes and pulled up about two centimeters from me, laying on the ground. If I make a mistake, they'll do everything but kill me. They're so addicted to protocol from the old ways. But what I am also saying is that these rocks are part of this collective future we're coming up to. They are now starting to vibrate at a much higher level and they've got used to the fact that they were hidden for 400 years. And as a result, when they came back, they left what was an original society doing protocol, ceremony, dance, and they come back to this, and they can't understand what's happened to the world. They feel like the world's fallen apart, and their job is to help us get past this. So yes, we do have rocks, and they are rocks, but they're a little bit more than that. They're actually part of our, and they're like time capsules. Every person who touched one of those rocks, it absorbed their story and their DNA. Wow. That is a great story. But you actually you got through and you were able to take the rocks home. Yeah, but soon after I tried to take them through in Ballinor Airport, it just got out of control. I now put them in the actual baggage. I put them in the baggage. I can't go through the um, screen because they bail them up every time and said, that's not right. And I knew what they were talking about. And the funny part is now, when I put it in our baggage that goes on, the, not carry on, it goes in the, the actual luggage compartment, the first time I'm sitting there waiting, I get called. I got called. Oh, no, <laughs> Here we go again. Oh, mate's waiting for me. And luckily, the guy that was waiting for me had read the stuff we were doing and knew about it. He said, they're those rocks, aren't they? I said, yeah, they are, mate. He said, oh, come on, we'll go inside. Look, show them one. They're freaking out at the moment. When they find this, that'll be okay. So I went in there. There's four guys standing around there with the bag open. I told them what was going on. He got behind me. He said, no, this is fair income. This is real. And they let it go. Next time I went there, the same guy was working on the, um, on the check-in counter. He said, you got rocks in your bag there? I said, yeah, I have. He said, right then. He stuck his head around the other side. And he told them, when this one goes through, let it go through. So is that what I've got? I've got a situation there where the baggage controllers know what's in my rocks every time I catch a plane and they let it go through. So we have a gentleman's agreement in, in Ballina Byron, but when it comes to Sydney, which is a big airport, no, it's not going to work like that. So, yeah, it's um, been an ongoing process. And the rocks are, again, another part of the original story that is so different to all the stories we know. And it's predicated around... Pleiadians and magic. That's what this is all about. You realise that there was a time in the past before the white fellas came here that it was regarded as important that every person had magic within them and their life's job was to develop that magic. So each person may have telekinesis, telepathy, whatever it is. They have a skill and they must develop it. And we've lost that. And in the future, we'll get it back. And of course, the rocks hold on to that energy and hold on to that magic. And they've done, oh, so many things now. I think I wrote an article once where I put up 25 reasons why I'm getting off the fence. 
It was basically 25 different things that broke the laws of science. It happens so often now that I, it's become like, I've become a bit blasé when something new happened. I do remember about four, last time I went to Sydney, I brought them back and I opened them up and I opened all the rocks up and there was one rock that was, all the other rocks were 20 degrees and one rock was at about 45 degrees and I put it on my forehead on the top where the pineal gland is. I only put it there for three seconds and burnt the skin. Oh. Every other rock was the same. By the way, this was a reptilian rock. They're a little bit cranky, those ones. They're a bit more willful, the reptilian rocks. It's actually got a dragon on it. And we know it's a reptilian rock. And it, they're a bit more emotional. And it, it was fed up with being in a bubble wrap for seven days because we had to do ceremonies. And I think it was just voicing its displeasure. Now, there's no way in the world that rock should have been hot because it was never put in the sun. And it was kept in a bag and it was put inside um, underneath the veranda because I can't take the rocks inside the house. They will kill people. Um, and there it is. And by this stage, I just told my wife and said, oh, one is playing up again. We're just so used to it now. It's just like, in fact, I can't remember all the things that have happened with these rocks now. So, yeah, and I, bear in mind, ladies and gentlemen, the reason why they're getting stronger is because there's a change going. That's the base of this. And that's what it's all about. God, it just it makes so much it sense. So, much. Mm, it so um, yeah, and Lavendar, right, you're going to need to come back at another time because I know we've only just scratched the surface, and this is such important information as the truth comes to more and more people. Um, yep, and, yep. and, you know, and the, the, the down spiral 3D energy is on the way out, Although mm. people are the people that are that are very heavily invested in the three D um, you know power and, and corruption, they are they're throwing everything they can to hang on to that, but it's not going to do them any good. It's not. It's the last because desperate attempt of some people who've been running this place for so long with the greys, with the reptilians, draconians, and stuff that have now lost their power base, and they know it's coming. They know. These ships are coming. They know that. And all they can do is create a situation where there are not enough evolved people, but there will be. They'll throw all the crap in the world on us, but the enlightened people won't give up on it. They'll keep there. They're desperate. And that's why all the sort of false flag shootings we're getting now are so badly done. They used to be very clever with their false flag stuff, but now they're just so sloppy. It's ridiculous. You can't feel like that. That wouldn't even make a comedy routine, mate. It's so badly put together. So, yeah, they're desperate. Their time is running short. Um, and to an extent, our role over the next nine months is to get this out to as many people as we can because there are a lot of people that aren't going to come yet that could. They're on the fence. There are people I see all around now. I'm seeing straight people say things. I'm thinking, oh my God, I never would have heard that three years ago. I hear so many people that are starting to question the government question a lot of things and we can still bring them with us and that's our role the elders told us what you have to do is to get many as many as they can to come to the right way because the story is when there's two reality once the other one kicks in and takes control the other one dies and withers and everyone involved with that side dies and withers with it so it's not as if and what the only thing that can stop this is if they don't come because there aren't enough people who are evolved to do that. I find it funny, in fact, not funny, but so, so interesting that you were called to put crystals at Uluru. 
which is where they're coming to. And all our people in Australia are still doing that, aren't they, Evan? Yeah. So you were locked in to the same message that was coming in Australia too. It's going around the world. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on Australia because things are happening. And I I was um, really interested in in the information that you've brought forward, and it ties together so many loose ends. So uh, we want to thank you for your work, your diligence, your dedication and commitment to the truth. And hopefully you'll be able to come back and share some more of your work with us at at a future date. Sure. Sure. I'm quite happy to do that. Yeah, as Martin okay. Luther King said, the truth will set you free. And that's what we've got to do. If we don't know the truth, we don't know how to go forward. We'll just try to stay in the Yes, what that's we'll right. do is I'll try not to get locked up. Um, and I'll try, <laughs> if, when we, if we do another interview, I'm hoping it won't be at Long Bay Jail because I know I'll get to the worst jail if I get in there. I'll go with the people that, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I hopefully I won't be. I don't really want to go to jail. But if it has to happen, it has to happen. I appreciate it. Good fun. I yeah. appreciate the fact you guys spoke to us and asked us to do this. And um, please keep doing what you're doing. I love the radio station. We haven't heard it before, but I love the news. That was good news, wasn't it? Yeah. That was the well, best you... news I've heard. I can't watch news on, on mainstream now because everything is negative. That was much better. Good fun. Right. Right. Yeah, we, we really – Anastasia does a great job. And um, in the future, you know, we're going to ask the whole audience – which is, I mean, thousands and thousands of people that listen to our show, um, to just keep that, that loving light um, sending yes. it to you to help you um, to get through obstacles and, uh, and you will triumph. I think we will. In one respect, I look at it like this, that I've got the Department of Aboriginal Affairs in Canberra constantly being told that bring us down, get off your fat ass and do something that was told to the minister. We now know that the Premier of New South Wales knows about what they're doing and won't help. None of us will help. None of them will help, but it doesn't matter because the more they don't help, the more I realise that we're right and they're wrong, which means we have to continue. We don't have a choice. That's right. That's right. Well, um, I'm glad that that you have, um, you know, a family. Um, Evan, thank you so much for... Um, following and and participating in this and um, we are going to sign off now and wish you the very the very best in everything keep up what you're doing holding the light on the planet and um, we'll look forward to speaking with you again same for us too we're both doing the same thing thank you thank you thanks a lot thank you Thank you so much. So um, you've been listening to Stephen and Evan Strong from Australia. And please tune in again next week when we will be back with another um, great show. And until then, just remember throughout the week to keep focusing on all the things we have to be grateful for. Until then, take care. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com.